Robinson hit that ball. It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, the great Jackie Robinson died in 1972. And we're about to tell you a heck of a story, the story behind the story of how Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey integrated baseball. It's a great scene from a movie about two men who changed American civic life. The cigar-chomping general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, played by Harrison Ford, is negotiating deal points with a new player, Jackie Robinson, in his office. This is back, by the way, when negotiating a player's contract consisted of management setting the price and players accepting it. But this was no normal negotiation. The only point of contention wasn't salary or bonus. It was character. One question is... Can you control your temper? My temper? Yes, your temper. What are you, deaf? A black man in white baseball. (laughs) Can you imagine the reaction? The vitriol? Dodgers check into a hotel, a a decent, good hotel. You're worn out from the road. Some clerk won't give you the pen to sign in with. We got no room for you, boy. Not even down in the coal bin where you belong. Team stops at a restaurant. Waiter won't take your order. Didn't you see the sign on the door? No allowed. What are you going to do then? Fight him? Ruin all my plans? Answer me, you black son of a... Robinson rises out of anger, but he quickly realizes Ricky is testing him. He's not sure why or how. You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse and they'll, they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say the Negro lost his temper that the Negro does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. Just moments later in this pivotal scene in the movie and in the lives of these two men, Ricky drives the point home one last time. Like our savior, you gotta have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? You give me a uniform. You give me a, a number on my back. I'll give you the gut. It was a powerful scene, but there was a gaping hole in it, and in the movie. And it was a terrific movie, but for this hole. And there were some serious unanswered questions. What savior? was Ricky referring to? Why did Ricky choose to integrate baseball and not some other manager? Why this young black man to enter such a sacred pact and not another in the Negro Leagues? And why, why did Robinson agree to those terms? That unnamed savior, by the way, 
was Jesus Christ. He was Branch Rickey's savior, and he was Jackie Robinson's too. Why would a movie about these two great men glance over such a big fact? For the same reasons Hollywood glanced over Johnny Cash's faith in Walk the Line and Louis Zamperini's in the adaptation of Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Leaving Christ out of Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson's lives is like leaving Apple computers out of the lives of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, or the Mafia out of John Gotti and Al Capone's. It was that important. So back to those questions, we need to first understand why Ricky took it upon himself to be the first front office leader in Major League Baseball in all American professional sports to field a black player. And remember, this was back when the NFL was barely a league, and the NBA even less so. Baseball wasn't just the biggest national sport, it was the only national sport. And Brooklyn wasn't exactly a hotbed of cultural sensitivity. Fierce racism existed between the many ethnic groups crowded in and around Ebbets Field in Flatbush. This was a huge risk Ricky was taking with his ball club, with his career, and with his life. What was the source of Ricky's calling, his courage? Well, Eric Metaxas had a word or two on this at USA Today. Eric is also a terrific author, wrote the remarkable book Bonhoeffer. For starters, Metaxas said, Ricky was a Bible-thumping Methodist who refused to attend games on Sunday. He sincerely believed it was God's will that he integrate baseball, and he saw it as an opportunity to intervene in the moral history of the nation, as Lincoln had done. The legendary sportscaster Red Barber who called games for the Brooklyn Dodgers, told the story of when he first learned about Ricky's intention to bring a black player to Brooklyn. It was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before he ever knew Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. You know, when you go back and you watch 42, in that great scene that we played before, there's a board and there were a bunch of names on it. And those were all the players in the Negro Leagues that Branch Rickey was auditioning. Because he needed not just a great player, but the player with a temperament. And by the way, he pretty much believed it needed to be a Christian temperament. How else to get through that kind of name-calling? By the way, as Martin Luther King got through it, too, with dignity. And when we come back, we'll continue with the life of Jackie Robinson. He died on this day in history in 1972. And we'll tell you more about his remarkable walk, his faith walk, Branch Rickey's faith walk, too, here on Our American Story. In the street, Jackie Robinson hit that ball. It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild Because he knocked that ball a solid mile, yeah boy Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball Satchel Page is mellow, so is Caponello Newcomb and Dobe too we continue here on Our American Story, celebrating and honoring the life and death of Jackie Robinson. He died on this day in history 
1972. And now again, we turn to author Eric Metaxas, who talks about that very first meeting between Jackie and Branch Rickey. Knowing that Jackie shared his Christian faith and wanting to reinforce the spiritual dimensions of what the two men were about to embark upon, Ricky brought out a copy of a book titled Life of Christ by Giovanni Papini. He flipped to the passage in which Papini discusses the Sermon on the Mount and refers to it as the most stupefying of Jesus's revolutionary teachings. It certainly was revolutionary. In fact, it seemed impossible. In Matthew 5, 38 through 41, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it turns out, Ricky chose Robinson, because he too believed in those words. Ricky and Robinson both believed that turning the other cheek wasn't merely a practical thing to do, Metaxas explained, but the right thing to do. Ricky deliberately sought Jackie because he was looking for a player whose behavior on and off the field would be as exemplary as his athletic performance. He knew it would take faith in a higher power to do it. So where did Robinson's faith get cultivated? Well, Rachel Robinson, Jackie's wife, was interviewed, and she had this to say about Jackie's mom, Mally. Quote, I believe that Jackie derived his sense of himself, his life, his mission, and the courage to carry it out from his mom. His mother was an extraordinary woman, courageous, determined, extremely religious, and self-reliant. She'd been a sharecropper in Georgia. Her husband left her with five small kids. So she packed them up and took them to California, all alone. Mally managed to purchase a home for the family from her salary as a domestic worker and she created an environment that was filled with positive values as well as love. Through it all, Robinson's mom emphasized to all of her children the deep belief that God would always take care of them. Jackie Robinson told reporters years later this, I never stop believing any of what my mom taught me. When Robinson was a young man, he was involved in fights and a few brushes with the law too. Again, his father had left the picture. All were prompted by his reaction to racial slights and attacks. In his book, Jackie Robinson, a biography, author Arnold Rampersad described how the young Robinson was rescued from a life on the streets and mentored by a man named Reverend Carl Downs. Downs ended up being not only a father figure to Robinson, but also brought Robinson closer to God, closer to his spiritual father. It was through Downs' mentorship and instruction that faith seeped into Robinson's consciousness, the author wrote. With it came the same personal moral code taught by most white and black Protestants in the early 20th century. Faith in God, Rampersad wrote, began to register in Robinson as both a mysterious force beyond his comprehension, but also a pragmatic way to negotiate the world. As an athlete at UCLA, and Robinson, by the way, was the only athlete in UCLA history to letter in four sports, he was notoriously clean-living openly averting the drinking and carousing that accompanies college life, and publicly disclosing to all that could hear that he was saving sex for marriage. Those character traits, those daily habits, and his deep-held religious beliefs all contributed to Ricky's decision to choose Robinson over all of the other players to integrate into the league. It didn't hurt that Robinson was a remarkable athlete who would go on to become one of the best hitters 
and base dealers in the entire league. What was most remarkable, though, about Robinson's faith as the years proceeded was how it allowed him to see all the positive things in his life and the good people around him. In his book, 42 Faith, The Rest of the Jackie Robinson Story, then CNN and now Fox News reporter Ed Henry spent a good deal of time explaining how Robinson managed to remain happy and hopeful despite the hate and adversity around him. Though he was the focus of a barrage of racial insults and death threats, throughout his career, Robinson still managed to say these words and mean them. Quote, This country and its people, black and white, have been good to me. Robinson's faith was not of the pious variety or a self-righteous kind either. He knew his limits and his deficits. I'm not the most religious person in the world, he noted in his unpublished manuscript. But I do believe in God and in the Bible and in trying to do the right thing as I understand it. In a 1950 newspaper interview, Robinson emphasized his faith in God and talked openly about his habit of kneeling at his bedside every night to pray. It's the best way to get closer to God, he said, and added with a smile and a hard-hit ball. Martin Luther King said this about prayer, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Robinson's prayer life not only sustained him through hard times, but enabled him to bring a touch of God's grace and mercy to a world in deep need of both. Robinson's earthly athletic talents didn't hurt either. He played some epic baseball in his career in Brooklyn as the team's leader. In his 10 seasons, the Dodgers won six National League pennants. In 1949, he batted 342 to win the league title. Branch Rickey died on December 9, 1965. He was 83 years old. He was in the middle of a speech he was giving while being elected into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Jackie Robinson, he died at the age of 53, too young, a result of a heart attack. It was October 24, 1972. And to end this segment, we thought there'd be no better person to throw to than Red Barber. And before we do, A last quote from Jackie Robinson. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives, he told reporters not long before he passed. He and Branch Rickey, through their love of God and baseball, changed this country forever. And now let's hear from Red Barber's final thoughts about this great athlete and man. The story of Jackie Robinson is not in his base hits or his percentage or his stolen bases. To me, the story is Robinson, the spiritual man, who didn't answer back for three years. And that is what made it possible for the others. And it's so true, that's what made it possible. And again, that's what 42 left out of the movie. And I'm not sure why movie makers do this, but they do it all the time. Leave out the source of the inspiration for the great men that do great things. By the way, Robinson's life, the way he carried himself became a model for Martin Luther King. Watch the two. Google both men. Watch Jackie Robinson's last interview with Dick Cavett. Look at the way he carried himself, the way he talked, the way he behaved. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale has a deep connection to the racial history of this country. Dr. Larry Arn, in a speech 
not too long ago, said this, Hillsdale was an abolitionist college. Hillsdale is an anti-slavery college on both Christian and political levels. On January 21st, 1863, Frederick Douglass gave a lecture in the college chapel titled Popular Error and Unpopular Truth. A report published in the Chicago Tribune, There Was No Transcript, described Douglass as saying that, quote, the Civil War was the logical sequence following the wrong of human slavery. We had attempted to contravene the laws of God by transforming men into beasts of burden. And it's so true. It's the original sin of this great country, slavery. And by the way, Hillsdale, well, it sent a higher percentage of its students to fight in the Civil War than any Western college. And by the way, that was back when Michigan wasn't just a northern state. It was a Western state. 400 students fought for the Union. Four were Medal of Honor winners. Three became general officers. Many more were regimental commanders, full-bird colonels, leading regiments of up to 1,000 men in the beginning of the war. And of course, those regiments shrunk to 500 or less through to death and injury and attrition. 60 died and paid the ultimate price. Hillsdale College, they teach all the beautiful things in life, liberty, history, art, and if you can't get to Hillsdale or never had the privilege to go or visit, Hillsdale will visit you through the free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. On this day in history, in 1972, Jackie Robinson died. continue with our American stories, and there's a lot of things wrong in this world, but there's no shortage of good friendships. Strong friendships are what help us navigate the complexities of life that we face along the way. Here at Our American Stories, we love to celebrate tales of unlikely friendships. And by the way, we've done any number of them on this show, and send yours to us as well. Unlikely friendships in your life, unlikely friendships in history. And we'll produce them here at Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and send them to us. And here's a story from Sarah on one very unlikely friendship. This is a story about two great men. One, a rock star. The other, a man of the cloth. Both revered as giants in their respective worlds. But their paths had never crossed. And eventually, it was the power of words that brought them together. We bring you that story, an ironic story, 
of the poet and the pastor. First, we'll hear from the pastor. But when I was a young person, well, young, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was within walking distance of a range of mountains. And I used, every Saturday I used to um, boil a couple of eggs and get some bacon and, and ride my bike to the slope of these mountains and spend the day um, looking for Indians and uh, looking for arrowheads and I never found any of that stuff, but it didn't make any difference. I was well populated with imagination. Eugene Peterson fell in love with language at a very young age. And in his adult life, he would go on to translate the entire Bible. But had you told him that in these early years, he would not have believed you. We moved to Crosstown when I was about um, 10 years old. And I had no friends. And I had a, um, a Bible that I purchased with my own money. And uh, I started reading it. And somebody told me that the Psalms were a good thing to read. So I started reading the Psalms. And about a month into that, I realized what they were. And uh, I didn't know the term metaphor. Um, but I, I, I realized what metaphors were. So then so I was off. And the Psalms were my introduction to poetry. And when I realized that, then all that, well, the, the images, the symbols, and everything started to fit. You know, a metaphor is, is really a remarkable kind of formation because it both means what it says and what it doesn't say. And so those two things come together and it creates an imagination which is active. You're not trying to figure things out, you're trying to enter into what's there. I think it's, well, it's been important for me. I, I would think it'd be important for anybody. But to find a few poets that really strike home to you and, uh, and then memorize them. Uh, and you learn to listen to the, the, the dynamics of their language and uh, recognize things that, uh, if you're just looking at the words, um, for me, uh, George Herbert has been one of those poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Mary Oliver. I don't have a lot of them, but uh, I memorize them because then I can, you know, the, the music gets inside my head and I'm, I'm reading poetry without knowing I'm reading poetry. And then that helps with the, with the scriptures too. I, you know, I didn't realize when I did the message, I had a had a congregation of people who didn't read books. So I started translating the Bible in their language, not knowing that I, what I was doing. This is the piece of work Eugene is most known for: his translation of the Message, the Bible in contemporary language. But at this point, he was already a wildly prolific writer, authoring over 30 books as poet, pastor, theologian, and scholar. And suddenly, um, they started paying attention to me in a way they never did before. But there was someone else outside of his congregation who had been paying attention to him all along. 
Mr. Peterson, uh, Eugene. Um, my name is Bono. I'm the singer with uh, the group U2, and wanted to sort of video message you my thanks and our thanks in the band for this remarkable work you've done. There's been some great translations, some very literary translations, but no translation that I've read that um, speaks to me in my own language. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, take a rest now, won't you? Bye. I never heard of Bono before. And then uh, one of my students um, showed up in class with a copy of the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones? And in it, there was an interview with Bono in which he talked about me and the message. And he used some, you know, slangy language about who I was. And, uh, and I said, who's Bono? And they, they were dumbfounded. I'd never heard of Bono. <laughs> But that's not the circle that I really travel in very much. So that's how I've heard about him. Here's the rest of the story on the origin of their friendship, as told and produced by Fuller Studios at Fuller Seminary. And, uh, and then people started bringing me his music, and I listened to his music, and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to... After a while, I started was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> yes, but the rest of the story is when the, he invited you to come and hang with them for a while, you turned him down. I was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh, you may be the only person alive. <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> well, eventually they did meet in 2009 after Bono invited Eugene and Jan Peterson to one of his concerts in Dallas, Texas. We were really well cared for, had really good seats. And uh, I'd never seen a mash pit before. That was my introduction to the mash pit. <laughs> Is it a pit? It's a mosh pit. Mosh pit. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can see how uneducated I am in this world. And we had a, it was a three-hour lunch. And uh, we just had a lovely conversation. Uh, it was just very personal, relational. He didn't put me on any kind of a pedestal and I didn't him so we were very natural with each other and when we come back we'll continue with this remarkable story the poet and the pastor and anyone who's familiar with Bono's writing his lyrics and what he's writing about listen to one love carefully is all I can say and so much of the rest of it an Irish Catholic kid trying to make sense of the world especially growing up with Protestants and Catholics blowing each other up but still longing for God and longing for spirit and longing for meaning in his life. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the poet and the pastor, here on Our American Stories. 
we're back to the story of Bono and Eugene Peterson, a tale of an unlikely friendship. It started with Bono's admiration for Eugene's work, and then Eugene found a deep appreciation for the way Bono has so boldly reached millions through his lyrics and his music. The two became fast friends after the Petersons attended Bono's concert in Dallas, and they met again for a second time, this time at the Petersons' own home out in Flathead Lake, Montana, where Eugene grew up. They met to catch up as friends and to discuss their shared love for the Psalms. It's here that we pick up the story with Eugene and his wife welcoming Bono to their home. It's so good to have you here. Great to see you. Oh, God bless you. Oh, God bless you, that's for sure. <laughs> Look where you live. This is quite a spot. You know, I just realized, never been to Montana. Haven't you really? So many gifts already, <laughs> just, just, just since being and here. My father bought the property just towards the end of the Second World War, 1945, 46. So then we expanded, we doubled the size of this because right. we knew we'd, we'd have a lot of guests. We knew we'd have you. <laughs> Foolishly made room for the Irish. To say, in the last years, Eugene's writing, Room of the Horses, that's a powerful manual for me. And it includes a lot of incendiary ideas. You know, I, I hadn't really thought of, of Jeremiah as a performance artist. Why do we need art? Why do we need the lyric poetry of the Psalms? Why do we not? Because the only way we can approach God is, if we're honest, through metaphor, through symbol. So art becomes essential, not decorative. I learned about art. I learned about the prophets. Uh, I learned about Jeremiah with that book, and that really changed me. I remember the Psalms from the little Church of Ireland church as a child going. I remember thinking, great words, shame about the tunes. Uh, except for The Lord is My Shepherd, which was a great tune. And I really liked that. This is good. Words and melodies. Ah! They have this rawness, the brutal honesty of whether it's David or not, it doesn't matter. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy um, that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. It's that that makes, that sets the psalms apart for me. And, and I often think, gosh, well, why isn't church music more like that? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want he makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Is that right? It's beautiful. By translating a psalm for a certain person, just a single person, to try to get them to realize that Praying wasn't being nice before God. I would translate a psalm that I thought fit them. 
I think I'm doing it as about as close to the Hebrew as I can get it. But it's, it's not smooth. It's not nice. It's not pretty. But it's, it's honest. And I think we're trying for honesty, which is very, very hard in our, in our culture. I, I'm talking about dishonesty. That I find a lot of in, the, in, in Christian art, a lot of dishonesty. Yeah. Right. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I think it's a shame because you got, these are people who are vulnerable to God in a good way. You know, vulnerable, I mean porous, open. I, I would love if this conversation would inspire people who are writing these beautiful voices and writing these beautiful, say, gospel songs. Write a song about their bad marriage. Write a song about, about how they're, you know, pissed off at the government. Because that's what God wants from you, the truth, the way, the truth. And, and that truthfulness, know the truth, the truth will set you free. It'll blow things apart. Why I, I'm suspicious of Christians is because uh, of this lack of, of realism. And I'd love to see more of that in art and in life and in music. You know, uh, I'm an opera singer, and so I let those feelings go through me and come out. Uh, having feelings is perfectly normal. Let them out. Why do I like the Psalms? David, I like David very much. He danced naked in front of the troops. That's one reason I like him. <laughs> and his missus was not at all happy. It's this abandonment, you know, that, that you've got to, you've got to get it out. It's important. And dancing, very important. Understanding our, our bodies as well as our minds and our spirits. And the three-personed God, the Trinity, is reflected in our, our body, mind, spirit. And we have to, we ignore we really do ignore this. We need to find a way to cuss without cussing. And the imprecatory psalms surely do that. They just lay it out. If we've got to have some way in context, and the context is the whole Bible and the whole Psalter, some way in context to tell people how, how mad we are. Uh, one of Eugene's uh, translations, uh, 35, punch the nose, punch the nose, is that 35? It's fantastic. And uh, punch the nose of the bullies, God. Um, but I love the idea of you've got to cuss, find a way of cussing without cussing. And you have to give vent to that. I like that, that that's going to stay with me. Bono most certainly gives vent to the angst found in the Psalms. He's written a number of songs that speak directly to the reality of suffering, pain, and evil in the world. But there's one song in particular that sticks out to him. It's called Raised by Wolves, the song. And I tried to make it real. I tried to bring people to that place because it must have had an effect on me and I want to understand violence. Um, a bombing that I missed in Dublin myself um, three car bombs, time to go off at 5.30 on a Friday night in 1974. Any other time I would have been on the street where the bomb went off because I used to travel through the city centre. I'm going to get two buses home from school. 
and but there was a bus strike that day and I took the bicycle and I have no problem with the Old Testament I don't see God as a violent God but I think the world is a violent place and it does reflect that and and it, it's a terrifying thing into some of the Old Testament but 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 it is real And in a way, I kind of prefer it to the airy fairy stuff, where we don't get, re you know, we don't, where we don't get real. There's violence. There's got to be some kind of response. And is it more violence or less? I'm glad we have a crosses in every room in this house. But I, when I look at those, I think, I don't think of. Decoration. I think of this is the world we live in, and it's a world with a lot of crosses. And I just would like to spend my life doing something about that through scripture, through preaching, through friendship. And now my, you know, my ears are getting shorter and uh, don't have nearly as many left. But I, I don't want to escape the, escape the violence. Eugene did not avoid the violence. And he didn't shy away from tough conversations. The rock star and the pastor remained close friends over the years, even when Eugene grew sick and entered hospice for complications related to heart failure and dementia. In Milan, on October 15th, U2 performed One, a standard in their encore. But on this night, Bono included a dedication near the end of the song and a rare coda not yet heard on the Experience and Innocence tour. Hear us coming, Lord. Hear us call. Hear us knocking, knocking at your door. The dedication was to the ailing Eugene Peterson. Eugene would pass away seven days later. October 22nd, 2018, at age 85. And great work on that, Sarah. And those words of Pastor Robinson. Praying isn't about being nice before God. It's about being real, honest. We're trying for honesty, which is hard in our culture. And that these two men became fast friends, not a surprise to me a surprise to others, but they've both been thinking about writing about the same things for a very long time, what I'd call real Christianity, and the search for that. The story of the poet and the pastor, the story of Eugene Robinson and Bono, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a, a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered, um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, KV Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone, she's okay, I've trained her. Um, And he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this and they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me and my boyfriend just happened to be a 235 pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand. Um, why he was so angry and, and I began thinking well it's probably because he's the race director he thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know sneak into the race when all along you know I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do but anyway um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck and the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world even before I finished the race 
people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by burly boyfriend because in 1967 that's what people love to think is that you know if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger and and that's essentially what happened but the whole story was bigger than that and the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here, um, and wasn't the road free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl, and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman. Because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon. 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me. And, 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afra afraid of him. But along about Heartbreak Hill, about 21 miles into the race, the anger really left me. And it left me with wondering why. Um, and I said, well, that's because he's a product of his time. He's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason, because maybe he believes that, you know, it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this. It was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race. Although, as I said, there were no rules written about this. Um, and I sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time. But then I got angry at women, and I kind of wondered where they were. You know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man, or hair would grow on her chest, or she'd turn into some behemoth, and her uterus would fall out, she'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths, I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise, or reinforcement to prove otherwise, or you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt, felt very empowered and strong, if I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Catherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race, said I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with with grown-ups essentially there. Um, And my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through a Washington DC stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. It was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school, feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, 
it helps you make a decision that's that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the the concept for me of that if I could do that that like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of this story is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could and to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross-country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now, I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did, and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team. It was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all. And they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know, <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner and he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me. And as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. 
But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger. And he said, no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, and best of all, I've got a running buddy. 
and I'm going to show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained, and oh gosh, I would say it was late March, and came the day we were going to do 26 miles in practice. Um, when we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach, was so impressed. He said, wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm, I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on, you're not serious about running another five miles. He said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this. We can do this. And he was just gone on his feet and just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile. Come on, come on. I put my arm through his. I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We can do it. And when we finished this last piece came across our imaginary finish line I threw my arms around him I said we did it we're going to Boston and he passed out and when he came to he said women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina it was an amazing moment it was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting that the longer it got the better I got that when we went out to run eight or ten miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us you know they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them but when it got to 12 15 miles we were pretty evenly matched and then after that they said you know the hell with you guys we don't want to we don't want to run any further than this this is crazy stuff and really what was happening was that that as the distance got better my natural attributes the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in the ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off. Even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know. For 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men, men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in, the, in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed um, and I was second-guessing myself and my worthiness to be 
in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon, and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success. I realized that women maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances the data on international participation. And with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. 
So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, when she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. The Olympics are the ultimate really in sports recognition and now we were running the toughest event 
in the highest form, uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that to me was about the physical equality. And that's why it was to me com comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing. Uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever, but on their back they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution. Um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps, but you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five 
to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line in 444, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware. He had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turned me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in fact, a few hours before he died, and people said, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends, and I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life. And my goodness, that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends, a testimony to how to live a life. What a story, one of our favorites here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, again, go to Our American Network. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Our five best stories will come to you, and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. 
Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.